Hey, everybody. Good morning. Welcome, Centennial Church guests, visitors. Uh, so glad that you're joining us here this morning as we begin a new study, a new sermon series in the book of Colossians that we're calling King Jesus uh, because he's the king. And so I want to encourage you uh, to have a Bible in front of you this morning. If you don't have one, please just jump up right now and get one or bring it up on your phone or another phone that you're not watching from or whatever. But join us in the book of Colossians. Uh, as we begin our study today, we're going to look at the first 14 verses of that book. And uh, as you get there, uh, I'm sure you're all noticing that I got my hair cut. So praise the Lord. Uh, you know, maybe we're on the end of Corona here. Um, so please be sure and, you know, let me know in the comments how you like it. If you think I should shave the beard or whatever. Um, just kind of kidding. But anyway, hopefully you have your Bible now, uh, and we are going to look at the first 14 verses of this wonderful short book of Colossians, but packed full of, of great stuff for us. Um, so the book, uh, or our passage today, I should say, just kind of breaks down into three easy parts. The first two verses are the greeting, and then in verses 3 through 8, we see uh, praise. And then in the final verses, verses 9 through 14, we see Paul's petition. So uh, Colossians fits in with uh, three other books in the New Testament that are often referred to as the prison epistles, okay? All written by Paul. So you see Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And Colossians is going to sound a lot like Ephesians. Uh, and the book of Philemon was also written about the same time as Colossians. And these books, uh, with the exception of Philippians, Philippians is a, a prison epistle uh, while, while Paul was um, in, a, in a different prison under a different uh, house arrest. But uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon kind of all happen at the same time. And so Paul, uh, we believe, is writing this about 62 AD as he's in Rome. Uh, he's gone all the traveled all the way to Rome, Acts uh, twenty seven twenty eight. He's under house arrest, so he's imprisoned, but he has some freedom. He has a guard. He's able to see people. Uh, he's writing letters. Um, so uh, Colossians is one of these uh, letters that we have from Paul during that imprisonment. Now. Where is Colossians? What's going on in Colossians? Well, you may not uh, really care about ma maps, but uh, here's the Mediterranean Sea. And over here you have Greece and, and Corinth. And right here along the coast is Ephesians. They've got it uh, amplified up here. You see Ephesians right along the coast. And then Colossae over here is the way you would pronounce that Colossae right along the Lycus River, about 100 miles to the east of Ephesus. So Colossae, it wasn't a, a large city. Uh, in fact, there was an earthquake pretty quickly after uh, Paul wrote this. It's one of the reasons we know that it was written early in the 60s because uh, it's not affected. They're, they don't seem to be affected by this earthquake that happened a few years later. So Paul is the author. He's writing to this church. And uh, how does he know anything about this church? Well, he's never been there. Um, and we find out uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, that it's a guy named Epaphras, who uh, Paul says is our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us about your love in the Spirit. So there's this guy uh, who... 
probably heard Paul preach while Paul was in Ephesians for two or three years on one of his missionary journeys. So this guy named Epaphras comes all the way from Colossae, 100 miles over to Ephesus. Here's the gospel from Paul and then goes back to his hometown in Colossae where he founds, begins this movement of Christ people, uh, begins a church in Colossae. So Paul's never been there. Uh, but Epaphras has now traveled all the way to Rome to where Paul is and has told him some of his concern about this little church. Uh, and again, it's not uh, on a major thoroughfare. It's not a big metropolitan area, but Epaphras is com concerned about uh, the church and particularly some of the false teaching that has arisen around the church and, and within the church. So Paul writes to them, even though he's never met them, he hasn't been there. He's writing because he's concerned uh, for these dear people that Epaphras has told him about. The letter uh, goes from Rome, delivered by a guy. If you look over in chapter 4, uh, verse 7, uh, the messenger is a guy named Tychicus, which is a wonderful name. Uh, nobody's naming their kids Tychicus these, day, but these days, but Tychicus takes this letter, Colossians, as well as Philemon, and delivers it uh, to the people in this area. Philemon, we believe, uh, was also a member of this church in Colossae. So Epaphras has come to Rome. Paul has written the church in Colossae, uh, as well as the letter of Philemon, and he's sending it back through Tychicus, uh, and they're receiving this, this letter uh, from him uh, through Paul. So 62 AD, those are kind of the circumstances. It's one of these prison epistles, um, and we see here just in the in the first a uh, couple verses, uh, the introduction, which I'll just read quickly, um, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. That's really a pretty basic, simple uh, salutation, greeting uh, from Paul. Uh we talked about when it was written, uh, where Colossae is, how it gets to them. Uh, we also need to discuss the circumstances uh, surrounding the church and why Paul's writing to them, why Epaphras travels to tell Paul um, about what's happening. And we don't know exactly uh, the nature of the false teaching that's going on, but this the occasion of this letter is that Epaphras and Paul are concerned about some false teachers that have crept into this church. And uh, it seems to be that there's some heresy that has both a Greco-Roman nature as well as a Jewish nature. So the Greco-Roman uh, bit of the teaching that they were hearing about was kind of this incipient or this beginning form of Gnosticism, which is a Greek word for knowledge. And apparently there were some of these Roman teachers um, that were kind of saying, hey, you know, we have some secret knowledge and some secret practices and some deeper spiritual truths that you really need to know to connect with God. 
uh, it's it's stuff that Paul hasn't told you about. Not everyone knows about it, but uh, it was some secret knowledge. And it also had this aspect to it that really downplayed the physical. It's kind of said the physical was uh, the material world is kind of evil. Um, so that's kind of the 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 Roman Gnosticism teaching that that seems to be cropping up. But there's also um, this Jewish aspect of the false teaching. And we see that um, at the end of chapter two, actually beginning in verse 16, um, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. And he's talking about these kind of Jewish regulations, uh, dietary laws and things like that. And he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then on down in this section, which we'll come to in weeks from now, but he says in verse 23 of chapter two, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here's what's happening. You have this teaching and some people, um, saying, hey, there's, there, there's this knowledge, this deeper knowledge that you need to know about in addition to Christ. Uh, and then you have a Jewish aspect of it that is saying, well, you also need to keep the Sabbath days and you need to make sure that even the Gentiles are, are circumcised. So some people have the secret aspect and then some people have this kind of asceticism. Uh, you really need to observe these fast and these holy days and do these certain things uh, to kind of win uh, qualification before God. That seems to be the nature of what is happening. And Paul's writing this book to exalt Jesus, to clarify again the gospel that they have all the knowledge, they have all the power, and they have all the truth they need in the gospel that they received, the gospel of King Jesus. And so uh, he's going to begin here by being thankful for the way their faith has started and how their faith has grown. And then as he gets in uh, later in chapter one, he's going to talk about the supremacy or the word in the ESV is the, the preeminence of Jesus. So let me read uh, for you as one author has summarized the book of Colossians here is one of uh, the most thoroughly Christ-centered books in the Bible. In the book of Colossians, Christ is celebrated as the object of the believer's faith, the image of the invisible God, the creator of all dominions, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the unifier and reconciler of all things, the, save, the Savior through his sufferings on the cross, the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge, the triumphant victor over sin and Satan, the exalted Lord of life and glory, and the true pattern for the life of Christian faith. Um, that's who all the, all the things that Paul is going to say, this is who Jesus is in truth. And you don't need to go to anything in addition to, you don't want to take away from Christ. You don't want to add anything to Christ. Christ is enough. He is not just one piece of religious truth. He is the ultimate. He is not uh, just a good teacher or a good uh, uh, rabbi, but he's the best. 
He's sufficient. He's supreme over all. So that's the main theme uh, throughout the book of Colossians. So I want us to move uh, now into uh, verses three through eight, where the theme is really his praise uh, and it's thanksgiving for these people. And that's uh, the title of the message today is thanks be to God. Uh, Paul starts out with this wonderful uh, prayer of thanksgiving uh, for the church. Um, <clears throat> Let me read verses three through eight. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So we'll stop right there um, in those verses as we see how Paul expresses this prayer of thanksgiving uh, to the church in Colossae, again, who were dealing with these um, teachings and these attacks on the purity and the supremacy of Jesus. And let me let me return to that uh, for a second with just a couple of illustrations that might help uh, us understand some more what's happening here uh, in this letter and at that time. You know, we've all been stuck at home here, so we haven't gone out to eat uh, in some time uh, to a restaurant, I suppose. But think think about this for a second. A buffet. Now, some of you are thinking, man, I'd like to get to a buffet today for some Sunday brunch. But what's a buffet? If you've been to a buffet, uh, you know that at a restaurant, if they have a buffet, it's it's a serving of all these different types of food. And you can just get your empty plate and you go take a little from here, a little from here. You might get a taco here. You might get a salad here. You get you know your desserts over here. Um, but there might be all different types of foods on that buffet. Uh, instead of ordering from a, mem- uh, from a menu and, and saying, hey, I want an enchilada or I want a hamburger, the buffet allows you to pick and choose what you want, okay? Well, that's a, that's a helpful picture, I think, of what's happening here in Colossae. It's kind of a buffet-style spirituality. Hey, I'll take a little bit of this you know, Jewish flavor, and I'll take a little bit of this Roman flavor, and I'll just kind of pick and choose from my religious taste. Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to stick with Jesus, he's the bread of life, the, the spiritual buffet is just kind of mixed and matches and picks, and that might be fine uh, for our lunch and for our brunch, but the scriptures would say that's not the best way to seek after God is a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's what um, scholars often call syncretism. 
a little bit of this, a splash of that, top it off with some of this new ageism or whatever, or this kind of mysticism or, you know, this Jewish influence, that's syncretism, that's buffet spirituality. And that's the kind of thing that Paul's fighting against here in Colossae. And it's the kind of thing that we still fight against today of just a little bit of religion of this, a little bit of that, when Jesus is supreme and sufficient and king over all. We don't want to take anything away from him. We don't want to add anything to Jesus. So that's a buffet kind of illustration. Let me give you another one. And that is a picture, uh, a glass of sweet tea right in front of you. Maybe it's from Chick-fil-A, not on Sunday, but uh, you've got a glass of sweet tea, or maybe this is, this, this resonates with you more, a glass of wine. And you, t- you got that sweet tea or you got that wine and imagine just picking up from the floor, a, a, a bottle of water and just putting that water in there with the sweet tea or dumping that in with the wine. What happens? Well, the sweet tea gets diluted, right? The wine gets diluted. And that's what Paul was concerned about with this church, that they're picking and choosing, but also the purity of Christ, the beauty of Jesus is being diluted. So look with me uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, he writes this. He actually uses that terminology. He says, I say this, I'm warning you. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Or other translations say, fine-sounding arguments. I don't want your faith to be deluded. I don't want your faith to go uh, away from the purity of Jesus. That's the issue here in Colossae, and that's the issue even for us today. So he begins, again, verses 3 through 8, by giving thanksgiving for this church. And look how he says, uh, I always thank God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you. Uh, we see here Paul's commitment to prayer. Epaphras has come and he has given this news. And Paul's first you know, knee-jerk response is to begin praying for them. And he's praying for them and he's not just praying for them, but he's thankful for what he sees as their genuine faith. Um, we see in verse 4, this triad of virtues that Paul mentions. He says, we've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. And he says that your faith is in Jesus. Uh, you think about these three things. Faith kind of looks... Uh, up to God or, or back in faith to the cross, to Jesus. Love looks around to others. He compliments them, their love for all the saints. And then finally, he mentions their hope and their hope is few, future facing. It's forward facing. He says, the hope laid up for you in heaven. He's thankful. He gives praise to God for their genuine faith that they have embraced this gospel. And look at how he describes this gospel that has come to them. He says uh, at the the middle of verse 5, of this you heard before in the word of truth. He, He describes the gospel as the word of truth. He wants them to know this is not myth. 
but this is truth. And the word gospel there meaning good news. This good news has come to you and it's true. And not only is it true, but look at verse six, it's powerful. Um, verse six says, which has come to you indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you also. So here it is, 62 AD, excuse me, 62 AD, it's only been about 30 years since Jesus has uh, ascended, since his resurrection. And already in 30 years, this gospel message has gone all throughout the Mediterranean world, all throughout the Roman world, so much so that Paul is now in Rome uh, being getting ready for trial uh, because he's been brought before the emperor for these charges of, of the way uh, the, the Christians have disturbed the peace throughout the Roman Empire. Um, the gospel has spread. It is, it, is, it is powerful even just 30 years into the movement of Christianity. It's known throughout the Roman world. And not only has it, has it spread, but he says it's been powerful uh, even among you, uh, as it is also, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God, again, in truth. And then he, he says, you learned it from Epaphras. He was the missionary. So he's, he's thankful for the way they've embraced the gospel. He's thankful for the fruit that he sees of the gospel in Colossae and around uh, that area. So he begins uh, this letter with thanksgiving, but then he turns in verses 9 through 14, we see his petition or his request. And this is uh, wonderful for us here to consider as you think about uh, sometimes you don't know what to pray or how to pray um, for your family or for other folks in the church or whatever. What, what should you pray for? Right here you have some wonderful things that Paul gives us to pray about here in this petition part of these verses. Um, you could really summarize these verses as, as he gives this emphasis on both knowledge and power. Okay, we'll see that as we read through these verses here. So let me read 9 through 14, and then we'll come back and, and look at a few things. Beginning of verse 9, it says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I'll stop there at the end of verse 11 for now. He prays that they would grow in their knowledge, uh, that they would grow in power. But he's emphasizing here not just the knowledge that these Gnostics or these other religious teachers might be emphasizing, but the knowledge of God, the knowledge that has come through Jesus and the power that Jesus provides uh, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. He doesn't want, he, he's using the same words, knowledge and power that false teachers have been using, but he's, he's bringing them back to the truth of that in Jesus. Um, you see, uh, three W words 
here in these verses. I've highlighted them in yellow in my Bible, but we see that he prays for the knowledge of his will. What a wonderful thing to pray for others, that, that we would have knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, but not that we would just know, but we would also walk. We would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And finally, we would please him uh, in every good work. And then again, he repeats knowledge, increasing in the knowledge of God, that we would know his will, that we would walk in a manner worthy of him, and that our good works would bear fruit. Um, he wants the Colossians to grow in their spirituality, but to grow in their spirituality in, its, in accordance with what they've already received in Jesus. Yes, we do need to go deeper in Jesus. We just don't need to add anything on to Jesus or take anything away from Jesus. Paul is saying, I want you to know God. I want you to walk. I want you to live your life in a way that would please the Lord Jesus. And I want you to be about good works that, uh, that show fruit of this faith that is inside you that does, that bears fruit throughout this area and bears fruit even through you uh, as you follow Jesus. Not only uh, does he emphasize um, knowledge, but he emphasizes uh, power um, quite extraordinary uh, in verse 11. Uh, there's three words of power there in verse 11. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Strengthened with power according to his glorious might. Strength, power, might. Uh, Paul wants them to know that you, you do have power in Jesus. You have strength uh, God is mighty in you. So you don't need any extra things. You don't need any secret knowledge. You just need to go deeper in to the person of Jesus that you already know. And it's fascinating as, as he emphasizes might and strength and power. He doesn't say uh, that you would have that strength for some extraordinary, uh, even miraculous things. But look at the way he describes what they would need strength for. It's actually... Um, it's actually pretty docile. It's actually pretty plain. He says, uh, you may be strengthened for all endurance and patience with joy. Why do you and I need strength, the might of God to endure, to be patient? You know, we've gone through a, a bit of a trial and we, we don't need to exaggerate how hard it's been to be at home, but... Paul prays here just that they would be strengthened for the ordinary things to endure in faith and to endure faithfully um, through hard things and to hold fast to the faith that they already have and to be joyful, strength to endure, to hold on, to hold fast to Jesus and to endure those trials. Um, we need his power, don't we? And Paul says, you have it. I'm praying not that you would have some new power, but that you would have the, the power of Jesus uh, deeper and deeper. And look how he, look how he ends. 
He begins in verse 3 with thanksgiving, and he wraps up this section in verse 12 with thanksgiving. He says, giving thanks to the Father, and then there's these three verbs, uh, wonderful, uh, life-giving verbs. Uh, he says, giving thanks to the Father, and then he says, who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First of all, um, why should we be thankful? Well, he's already named some things in this at the beginning of this letter. But he also says that we should be thankful because God has qualified us to share in the inheritance. God has qualified us. We haven't qualified ourselves. It's not by any type of asceticism or good works or extra duties that we have received the grace of Jesus. We have received the grace of Jesus because God has qualified us. It wasn't the race we ran. It was the fact that God himself has chosen and qualified us for this inheritance, for this strength that we have. And secondly, not only has he qualified us, but he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. Uh, though the, the kingdom is, is dark that we live in, there's this secret kingdom, this subversive kingdom that has come in Jesus. And, and yes, it's growing, but sometimes it's hidden. And all those parables that Jesus gives about the, the, the mustard seed faith and the, the smallness of the kingdom uh, infecting uh, like yeast, but then spreading. Um, Jesus has delivered us from this broken world of darkness and sickness and sin and death. And he's transferred us into a new kingdom. And that kingdom has come in Jesus and that kingdom will be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. But he has qualified us. He has transferred us or delivered us, excuse me, uh, from the domain of darkness. And finally, he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, whom he loves. Because of what Jesus has done, we have new life. We've been uh, made partakers of this new kingdom. And because of that, we can give thanks. We should give thanks. We have power. We have joy. We have strength for endurance because of this wonderful gospel, this wonderful good news of Jesus. So what's the takeaways here for us as we think about the first part of Colossians? Well, we have some things to be thankful for, obviously. We have some things to pray for. Man, when you don't know what to pray, just open up your Bible and turn to Colossians 1 and, and begin at verse 9 and just pray for your loved ones and pray for one another in the church that, that God would... Uh, fill you, fill us with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in every good work. Just open up here and pray these words of Paul. Uh, it's wonderful prayers that are given to us right here in Colossians. And then finally, someone to hold fast to Jesus, Jesus. He's all we need. 
We may need to go deeper in him, but we don't need to take away anything from him or add anything to him as King Jesus is enough for all knowledge, for all power. And thankfully, he has brought us in to this new kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father God, our prayer this morning is that we would uh, embrace and hold fast to the gospel, the truth of Jesus, who has given us all that we need for life and godliness all that we need to endure difficulties. Lord, would you, uh, by your spirit, protect us, protect the purity of our faith in Jesus. Help us to hold fast in purity to who he is, not to take away from him, to compare him with any other idol or God, and not to add anything to who he is and the finished work that he has accomplished for us. Father, we just confess that many of us are uh, tired. We're fatigued from this season and we need the strength that you provide to endure, to find joy and to be faithful uh, in the good works that you have called us. So Lord, we just cry out uh, for your strength, for your might to be evident as we seek to serve and live for you. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.